Tony Campolo was one of my first all-time favorite guests I had on the show 15 years ago. He's the first guy to ever swear on my show, uh, but it was him, so you can get away with it. Of course. He joins us again today for two reasons. One, we're doing a little bit of the um, tribute to Billy Graham after uh, Tony Campolo. We're going to speak with uh, Rick Warren and then uh, Billy Graham's longtime spokesperson, Larry Ross. Uh, but also, we've got Tony on the show because I've been doing this uh, crawling back to the light business. How would you describe this segment instead of me reading the blurb again? Uh, uh, some sort of confessional, <laughs> in a sense. And I don't mean to be trite about it either. It's kind of one of those things where I think that you've been going through your, your journey. And, and uh, you and I were talking text-wise the other day. And, you know, you're turning the corner on what may be a corner. Yeah, so I don't feel I like I'm turning a, the corner, but I think I'm turning the corner before the corner. Yes, I think that's a good way Does to that make sense? describe it. Yes. So look, back in 2010, after seven years of hosting this show, I came out, uh, which is always a weird way to say it. But I admitted during an interview with Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias that I was no longer convinced that there's a God. Mostly because after 30 years of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, quote unquote, I realized that this God I was serving wasn't actually all that personal. So going public as a doubter, not an atheist, just a doubter, uh, I no longer considered myself part of the evangelical tribe of certainty, so I left. And I left organized religion, I left the church, and I left it up to God to reveal himself to me through one of those tangible encounters I kept hearing so many in my tribe speak about. Well, because of some fractured relationships in my world, me being, of course, the common denominator, 2017 ended up being the worst year of my life. So I've decided that since my way didn't quite work out, it's time to crawl back to the light, and I've decided to once again do this publicly. As embarrassing as it is to admit personal and spiritual failure, my hope is that others experiencing similar frustrations might learn something from my conversations with a few people who've had a profound impact on my life. I'm still not sure there's a God, Timmy. I'm still not sure. Okay. But my life seems to seem to have been better when I thought there was a God. So now what? Joining us to talk about this and Billy Graham is Tony Campolo, sociologist, theologian, author, storyteller, and horrible joke teller. Tony Campolo. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm on a cell phone. Uh, would you... Rather redialing. No, no, that's fine. As long as you're there, you sound you sound delightful. How are you? I'm delightful. <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that longest intro ever? The, the the diatribe. Did you hear it? Yes, I thought it was very flattering up until the last line where you mocked my joke telling. I would never do such and a thing. What you did, I heard it. What do you have to say to me about crawling back to the light? Let's do the crawling back to the light business first, and then we'll say a little something about Billy Graham at the end. Uh, if you were me, after seven years of walking down the road of doubt without a safety rope, and and all of a sudden life goes bleh, and you're looking at your life going, well, that didn't work, and you decide to crawl back, what, what do you say to me, man? What advice do you got? You know, there are many ways of looking at this. I have to say this. I have never met anybody who became a Christian or came back to Jesus because he lost an argument. You know, I have great respect for apologetics in that it really bolsters the faith of those who already believe. But having spent a good chunk of my life in a secular university and having won people to Jesus, in the secular university, the University of Pennsylvania, where I taught for 10 years, I led people to Christ, but it was never by argument. I prayed for people, I listened to people, and I talked about how wonderful Jesus was. 
Jesus wants that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men and all women unto myself. And so uh, in my days at, the, at Penn, when I was do, doing the evangelistic thing, and it was always to talk about Jesus and to talk about the glory and the magnificence of who he was, what he did, and how he acted, hoping that people would be drawn to him rather than driven to him through my intellectual diatribes. Mm. Okay, well, that's actually quite helpful because I have been inundated with people letting me know about facts and and uh, information and apologetics and and you know I know they're coming at it from a kind heart and they're trying to be helpful, et cetera. But it's just irritating. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's just irritating. The only reason I'm coming, I'm doing the whole coming back thing, is because life tanked on me. I wish I was coming back, Tony, because I had some great epiphany or some great experience or a tangible relational encounter with the creator of the universe, but I didn't. I'm crawling back because life tanked. Yeah. It didn't work without Jesus. That's what you're telling me. I, I guess life so. It didn't work. You know, you run, I, I find people who have strayed away and come back it's for two reasons. Number one, large numbers of other persons are praying for them. Um, you know, it was Tennyson who said, the world is yet to understand what has been wrought through collective prayer. Right. A lot of people pray for somebody. And as corny as it may sound and as mystical as it may sound, there is a dynamism about prayer that often drives people back to Jesus. The other thing is that things go wrong in life. A marriage breaks up. Um, a child dies, something traumatic occurs, and suddenly the person who was agnostic and didn't have any faith uh, needs a solid rock and uh, goes back perhaps to childhood, perhaps to an earlier time, and remembers the things that he believed, the things that he thought. I think particularly of uh, John F. Kennedy. He was on his PT boat in the World War II was struck by a Japanese destroyer. Uh, he and the priest somehow made themselves uh, uh, able to get to this little island. Uh, the island was not even on the map. Uh, they found themselves on this island. In gratitude, they formed a circle, held hands, and they, they started singing, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Here are these sophisticated, hardened warriors and yet, in a time of trial and a time of despair, they reached back and connected with something that was spiritual in their childhood that gave meaning to their lives, that gave them a sense of safety and well-being that transcended them. Hmm. So sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's, it's uh, traumatic experiences that gets people to say, hey, wait a minute, my agnosticism, my atheism uh, isn't working and they uh, reach back and tap into something of bygone days that they find very, very helpful, and that's what gets them back into the groove of faith. Uh, others uh, just come back because they have children who are growing up, and they're wondering, what am I going to teach these kids in terms of right and wrong? Maybe I'd better go back to church and bring my kids back to church. Not that I need God, but they need something to yeah. give them a moral stability and they get religious. And in the process, the guy who brings these kids back to church becomes spiritual as well. 
Okay, uh, Tony, I, I don't know how to ask this. Let me just see. Um, there are those that would say to me, well, Drew, you were probably never a Christian in the first place. You know what I mean. You know where that conversation goes. How do you, how would you reply to that? In other words, Drew, you were probably never a real Christian in the first place. Otherwise, you would never be able to walk away or fade away or, you know, you're saying God is, is weak and he can't hold on to you. And, and, and so you, so now, so now, you know what you need to do, Drew? You need to, you need to really become a Christian. Yeah. Well, uh, you probably know that my son is going through the process. Uh, he was a deeply committed Christian. He ran a mission organization that touched thousands and thousands of lives with the good news of Jesus. And then one day he sat me down and said, Dad, please don't get me wrong on this. I respect you. I respect the church people I know, but I don't believe in God anymore. And please don't think it's because I've been disillusioned by the church. I haven't. The church people are the best people I've ever known. It's not because I've had some bad experience with the church. It's just that one day I realized God wasn't real to me anymore. And note the word that I used, anymore. Right. And I asked him the question, was he ever real to me? Oh, yes. I used to feel his presence. I used to sense his meaning. I prayed to him regularly. I read the scriptures. I felt God speaking to me through the Bible. And then one day it just didn't work anymore. Uh, God wasn't there anymore. I read scriptures and it didn't come through. And uh, I just, I just don't believe anymore. I am not an atheist because that requires a high level of commitment. I'm an agnostic. God is not real to me, and I don't know whether there is a God or isn't a God. That's where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I asked him what brought this about, and he gave me a long litany uh, of things that may have brought it about as he went through self-examination, but uh, uh, the truth is, uh, he would say, anybody that says I wasn't a Christian has to answer this, why did I feel Christ's presence in me back then? Why did the scripture speak to me in a almost, in a supernatural way? And now nothing supernatural seems to be real in my life. What was going on back there and then? And please don't tell me it wasn't real, because back then it was real to me. Yeah. Well, I don't know that that uh, comment that they made to you, you weren't a Christian in the first place, uh, is, is a valid accusation. Uh, just to make sure all the cards are out on the table, I want to let you know, uh, Tony, that your son Bart uh, is going to be our guest on the show next week. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so well, because I think it's important for me to, you know, I made this decision. Wow, try that with my lips. I've made this decision to crawl back to the light. Boom, there it is. Okay, fine, no matter what. But I still want to talk to people who who aren't necessarily um, heading the same direction as I am spiritually, you know. And and uh, I need to talk to people who who have been there, who are further down the road, and even people that have decided to go a different direction. Because I, I just, I don't trust my objectivity in all of this. Does it, do you understand what I'm saying? I, and nor should you. Um, it was Soren Kierkegaard who said that since we are all subjects, we all know subjectively. That's this great statement. We, each one of us, 
none of us are objects. Each one of us is a subject. And subjects can only know subjectively. And while we claim that what we know is objective, in a real sense, there are subjective reasons why we are the way we are and why we believe the things that we believe. When my son wandered away, uh, as you may know, uh, Bart and I wrote a book entitled uh, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. He presented his case. My responses to him uh, is the content of that book. We recently released a movie film called Leaving My Father's Faith, in which uh, uh, we did a premiere in, in the Philadelphia area about three weeks ago. And the thing that we tried to communicate in both the book and in the film is that, uh, that the first thing and the first rule is you cannot make this into an, uh, a heated, nasty argument between father and son. You have to maintain communications. And when people were writing remarks about the film after they saw it, uh, over and over again, they said the thing that became clear is how much the two of you still love each other and still care about each other. And the thing that bothered Bart the most about telling me that he was no longer a believer was that he knew how much it would hurt me. Yeah. And it did hurt me. It hurt me greatly. He was a guy we used to talk about our faith with each other. We would share about our respective ministries because he was... He was very involved in missionary programs. He ran an organization called Mission Year, which reached hundreds of young people for the gospel. And we used to talk about these things and what Jesus was doing in our life. That's been lost now. And I feel that loss, but I still love my son, and my son will tell you uh, that he still loves me. So that maintaining a loving relationship is very, very important. My wife, who has over the years had a very significant ministry to, to kids who are gay and lesbian, and she's often had to talk to the parents who want to disown their kids because their kids have defined themselves in a sexual orientation that's different than what the parent thought was religiously acceptable. And the one thing she says to the parent is, for goodness sake, for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, don't throw away your child. Do not throw away your child. Maintain that loving relationship. Please understand this, and you know this, too, from your own experience, but you may have given up on God at a particular point in your life and, and said, I, I don't have a personal relationship with Him anymore. But God never gave up on you. And you may not have been in touch with God, but God was in touch with you. Uh, you know, when students say to me, I don't believe in God, I always tell them, but God still believes in you. So maintain the relationship. Maintain that connection of love. If ever the kid's going to come back, it's because love is the enticing and powerful force that's at work between you. Okay, Tony Campolo, do you, I mean, how does it feel knowing that you have had a profound impact on many parents whose children have adult children at some point or late teens or whatever at some point have decided you know what i'm not into the jesus stuff i'm not i don't want to go to church i'm not into religion i don't want anything to do with it i'm walking away from it all and those parents sit there and beat themselves up and as a matter of fact other parents 
they would never say it to their face, but other parents think about, you know, they've, they've heard about Johnny Smith and what they say in their, in their own home is, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith just didn't raise their kid right because he, he's walked away from the faith. You've just come out and you're Tony freaking Campolo and your son, your adult son, has kind of left it all behind him. He's walked away from it. So did, you're giving, are you giving hope to these parents? Are you giving encouragement? Like it just, it must be incredible. The profound impact that you and your son have had on other families. Yeah, well, let me uh, contend the following. First of all, for parents whose children have strayed away from Jesus, don't beat yourself up. Uh, Don't act as though if I had been a better father, if I had been a better mother, as the case may be, this would have never happened. There's always some biddy at the church who will say, well... You know what it says in the book of Proverbs? Raise up a child in the days of his youth, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. They always love to throw that verse at you. Yep. The truth is uh, that we don't live in a simple world. The social forces that are operative in a child, I mean, the secular media, uh, the motion picture industry, the music that we listen to, what we get on television... And what one experiences in one's peer group out there in the secular world, all of these things are drawing young people away from Jesus. And uh, the thing is that uh, it's not you, it's the whole world that sucks your kid away from you. And uh, the thing that you've got to do is pray against these negative forces, pray against these powers. Pentecostals understand that. They know what it's like to uh, get into spiritual warfare and to pray against the forces that are drawing their children away from God. But it's not your fault necessarily. It may be your fault in some cases, but in most cases it's not your fault. After about the age of 12, the social forces that are operative on a kid's life so overwhelm anything that a parent is trying to communicate that uh, the parent uh, becomes secondary in the uh, formation of the mindset and the orientation and the belief system of the child. So you don't beat yourself up, number one. Number two uh, is that uh, for those of you who are struggling with it, when we wrote the book, I said, I wrote in the book that I saw it coming. My son was living out in Cincinnati, and I would be in touch with him regularly by phone, even if I couldn't see him. And I would ask him questions like, Bart, uh, how was church on Sunday? I pause and, well, Dad, I, I really didn't go to church. I, the preacher kind of bores me. And church is very exciting. And I watched him uh, slip away from the church. Now, I'm a sociologist by trade, as you probably remember. And the truth is that any belief system, if it's to be maintained, has to be reinforced. The early Christians understood that. And they got together, get this, every single day. Roman Catholics, uh, who are really good Roman Catholics, uh, go to Mass every uh, single day. Strange as it may sound to those who are skeptical about the television personality Stephen Colbert, he goes to Mass every single day. Let me tell you this. What sociologists would say is the association in a setting like that with other people who believe the same things that you believe, reinforce your faith, build up your faith, 
strengthening your faith. That's why the Bible says, neglect not the gathering of yourselves together. Do not neglect yourself. That's what it says, and it says it clearly. Man, I, you know what? I, I'm trying to put down my big backpack of yeah buts. Um, yeah. uh, but, but, <laughs> but I, I have, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day and it was about tribal conditioning, Tony. And so, yeah. so I agree that there, that there are good uses and good reasons for tribal conditioning, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what the tribe believes is true. All that means is that they think it's true because they've been tribally conditioned. You're right, but I would only add that we are such individuals in our approach to reality. We are such individuals that we fail to understand that group affiliations is is a major part of who we are. And may I say, while group affiliations doesn't make you a Christian, the Bible's quite clear. Group affiliations is what maintains you as a Christian. Take the, uh, the first Corinthians, the 12th chapter. No member of the body, speaking of the church, can say to the rest of the body, I have no need of thee. The hand cannot say to the, to the arm, I have no need of thee. The foot to the arm, I have no need. Every member needs to be connected. If the Bible is saying anything to us in that important chapter, we don't maintain faith unless we are connected with people who share that faith. And the Bible says, neglect not the gathering of yourselves together. Church was created as an instrument of God to help believers to maintain their faith in the midst of a world that would otherwise overpower them with their secularity. Wow. Uh, uh, those are really weird sounds to hear on the other end of the phone, but but I'm just sitting here thinking, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is, Drew, read your Bible, go to church. I didn't and, even say read your Bible. I'm no. saying go to church. Uh, you have to be part of a group. Uh, we call these in sociologists. If you want to read up on this whole uh, matter, read up uh, perhaps on the great sociologists who study uh, what it is that people believe and why they believe it. People like, I'll recite these for your listeners, Peter Berger, uh, Walter Luckman, George Schultz. These are the great experts in the sociology of knowledge. And they will, in fact, talk about such gatherings. Here's the phrase that is used in sociology, as plausibility groups. Plausibility groups. Let me uh, uh, just uh, say this. Uh, you give me a, a, a atheistic kid and put him in a youth group and send him into the into the mountains for a church retreat for two weeks. By the end of that two weeks, being cut off from all outside influence, what he was becomes increasingly unreal, and what the belief system of this group is becomes very, very real. And you're saying, Campolo, are you suggesting that our faith is maintained and uh, substantiated by the groups of people who, in fact, share our commitments? You got it. I mean, in our individualistic world, we like to think that we're all like Sari Turkbar, who said, quote-unquote, in one place, I made my decision, my love is lie, suspended in a hundred thousand fathoms of nothingness, 
hey, it doesn't work that way. There is truth out there, but truth is communicated through groups, through fellowships. And this is why uh, Jesus gathered together a group of disciples. He created a church, a fellowship of people who would revitalize, renew, and sustain their commitments. These are called plausibility groups, plausibility structures. Read up about it in sociologists. Huh. And don't think, and don't think otherwise. If you leave the church, it's not because you, you're, you're now an individualist. You've simply left one group and joined another group. You've joined the secular group out there. You've, in fact, been fed secular stuff. As my son was straying away, he stopped going to church. I'd ask him, what books are you reading? Mm-hmm. And, he would, and they were agnostics, they were cynics. And he says, I'm just trying to try my faith. I said, Bart, it's not going to work. The truth is what you read, who you fellowship with. These are the things that maintain faith. Faith is a very, very frightening thing. You talk about people in, in the People's Republic of China who are incarcerated. And so many of them, when they're in prison, lose their old identity. It's called brainwashing. It's called brainwashing. If you're cut off from a group of people who revitalize who you are and what you are, and so we can take a Canadian and put him in solitary confinement in a North Korean jail, and if we keep him there for 10 years and refuse to allow him to associate with anybody that's Canadian, he will lose his former identity, and it's possible then to re-socialize him and make him into a bona fide, radical communist. You can do that. Brainwashing is a reality. It's a possibility. We learned that during the Korean War. We found out the hard way that people's entire personalities could be deconstructed and then reconstructed in a new way. And uh, we act as though we're total individualists, when in fact we survive by fellowship. When Jesus sent out his disciples, please note, he never sent them out one by one, even though that would have meant that the gospel would have gotten to far, far more extreme places in the earth. He sent them out two by two. Unless there's somebody there to reinforce you and to renew your faith, to recommit you. And let me just say, Christianity on a rational basis, let me use the word rational, on a rational basis is totally illogical. But the God, that there's a God who created the universe, a thousand years ago, became a baby in a manger, wet his pants, grew up, got crucified, somehow resurrected, although we can't prove that anymore, and is coming again someday. To insert all of those things sounds absurd, except for those who believe. Now, this isn't just me. Go and read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. What the gospel is, what our message is, is foolishness to the world. It's something in that category. It's foolishness. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then it goes on to say, but to those of us who believe, those of us, note the plural, it is the power of God. The truth is that on an objective level, level uh, people uh, think it's absurd. When I taught at the University of Pennsylvania, and most of my students were Jewish. They say, do you really believe the God who created the universe became a human being, and that somehow he died on the cross, and that takes care of our sins, and he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. I'd say, yes, how can you believe these things? 
And I said, well, I believe these things because I decided to. And I decided to because it was what the group helped me to believe. I don't deny the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, it becomes operative when we are gathered together. Here's what Jesus says. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Please get the note. You feel his presence when you're in close association with other people who share a common faith in Jesus Christ. Or you say, wait a minute, I'm an individualist. I want to decide this thing all by myself. I'm always intrigued with these pseudo-intellectual Christians who say I was a total atheist, and then I began to think this thing through, and I uh, looked at all the arguments pro and con, and I became... It's always a relationship. I sometimes do this. When I'm with a large group of people, I say, how many are in church today because of a television show they see? Hardly any hands go up, if any. A radio show, hardly any hands go up, if any. A book that you've read, hardly any, other than the Bible, hardly any hands go up. How many of you are Christians today because some person took a personal interest in you, prayed for you, brought you to church, nurtured you away along the way? You did not become a Christian as Kierkegaard suggested, to spend it in 100,000 families. Nothingness. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Christ is real to me, but Christ will become unreal to me if I, in the words of Scripture, neglect the gathering of myself with other Christians. Okay, that's called getting smacked up the, upside the head spiritually by Tony Campolo. Uh, Tony, that's why I had you on on this segment, uh, this whole crawling back to the light. Thank you for your words. As a matter of fact, the profundity that escaped your mouth is such that I'm going to have to go back and listen to that again. So thank you, uh, because it, uh, and I know it was good because I'm getting a headache. Well, thank you for giving me this chance, because a lot of people think, if they were just smarter, and a lot of parents think, if you could just talk to this intellectual Christian, if you could just uh, talk to this particular guy or that particular guy, uh, let me uh, tell you this. Uh, C.S. Lewis was perhaps the greatest apologist that we've seen around in the last hundred years. Yet his son, uh, his stepson, never became a Christian under his tutelage. It was when he began to associate with other people who were Christians that the whole thing became real to him. So I just want to lay that out to you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share what I think a huge number of your listeners are going to disagree with, because they think that becoming Christian is an intellectual process. The intellect is engaged, but Jesus said, if you're going to love God, it's your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength. Yeah. And just to take one component and think it can be done without a loan is to miss the point. So giving me an opportunity to share what is crucial to the maintenance of my own faith and, uh, uh, and, and might help some people. And I hope, and I'll tell you where they lose it, to do it's like a less shot, is this kid grows up in the church, he walks with Jesus, he goes off to the university, and for the first time it's Sunday morning and he doesn't have to go to church. He's tired, he's been studying all week, and he sleeps in. And every Sunday he sleeps in. And by the end of the school year, he's not a believer anymore. It happens over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. 
Tony, before we say goodbye, I, I, I need to know where were you when you found out Billy Graham died, uh, and 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 what what was going on in your brain when you found out Billy Graham died at the age of ninety nine this week? Uh, I was in my car driving to a class to teach when I heard it, uh, and two things came to my mind. I uh, met Billy Graham and had a long conversation with him, only once, had passing associations and meetings, you shake hands, hi, good to see you again, but I had one long conversation. It was before the Great Urbana Missions Conference in Illinois. Now, when I met him, and the first time I met him, the first thing this guy, who's the greatest preacher of our time, of the last 500 years, maybe longer than that, said to me, Tony Campolo, get this, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody compared to him. He says to me, I've used so much of your material. <laughs> oh, jeez, are you kidding? Hopefully me? hopefully not your jokes, because, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That was the first thing. But a little later in our conversation, he said, you know, at the Urbana Conference, they always have just one meeting where they give the invitation for people who want to commit themselves to missionary service. They always give that to me. It's time for me to step aside and give this privilege to a younger guy. I'm asking you to take over that responsibility. I was stunned. Yeah. But the greatness of the guy is that he's ready to step aside. The greatest preacher of our time, step aside and make room for, at that time, a young guy who's just coming along to give him a chance to have an audience before 20,000 uh, intensely uh, Christian young people who are considering becoming missionaries. This is the guy, humble, willing to push other people forward, wanting to give younger people a chance, uh, even though the audience, I think, would have rather heard Billy Graham. Uh, do you see the profundity of this guy's personality? That's incredible. Those that, that's that's an amazing story. Um, Tony, you've had an impact on my world for forty years, and uh, you hear this all the time. But I'm just going to cut it down to the to the main point. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. And thank you for being there for me too, Drew. Blessings on you, buddy. Blessings on you. Thank you. Bye, Tony.